Hi, Ben. My name is Ricardo Bardalis from Irvine, California. My name is Andrea Canziani. I call from Switzerland, Europe. Hi, Ben. This is Rochelle from Amsterdam, the Netherlands. Hey, Ben. This is Nick from New York City. Hi, Ben. This is Pete, and I'm listening to your show from Greece. Hey, it's Ben Wise, and this is The Fitness Movement. Fitness Movement is brought to you by Zor Fitness. Zor Fitness is my company and my platform to deliver incredible training-related content to people just like you. I don't just podcast. I write in-depth fitness articles. I break down common movements in the sport of fitness. I program workout plans, and I offer one-on-one coaching for competitive and recreational athletes. And the best part is most of what I have on ZorFitness.com is totally free. Check out these resources by going to ZorFitness.com. That's Z-O-A-R Fitness.com. Hope to see you there. And welcome back to today's episode where my rant is going to be broken up and more, let's call it segmented than it is usually. So today's episode is going to be exclusively answering your questions. So here's how it's going to go. An athlete or coach who listens to the show is going to ask their question. So you'll hear that recording and then I'm going to respond with my answer to that question to the best of my ability. So that's it. It's actually pretty simple. So with no further ado, let's jump into our first question. Hey, Ben, this is Nick from New York City. My question is regarding episode 13, running and CrossFit. I've always found that running tends to really beat me up in the sense that I tend to get shin splints, cramped hip flexors, and cranky ankles when I run distances of more than like a mile and a half. I'm 5'9 and 170 pounds, so I don't think I'm completely out of the range of normal running body types. In your experience, are these issues always indicative of poor running form? Maybe bad running shoes? Or are they common pains that just occur in people who aren't used to running, and therefore the best treatment is just to incrementally add in more running? Thanks. Really enjoy the podcast. Hey, Nick. Thanks for this question. I think it's a really good one. I got several emails after the running and CrossFit episode released. And I think this is something that's good to address across the board because a lot of people deal with joint irritation or strain, uh, muscle cramps, uh, GI distress, all these different symptoms that pop up from just running more um, and getting into running more. And a lot of people want to get better at running because it's a really good thing and truly a functional thing to try to get better at. So the first place that I would start is asking yourself, like, why do you actually want to get better at running? Is it because for one, like I said, is it just like a truly functional thing? And so it's just a fundamental skill that all human beings should have. Like everyone is designed to run. So you should have the capacity in it. Is that why you just want to get better at that skill? Is it something where you want to be actually competitive in running focused events, whether it's like recreational at like a local um, event with a 5k or 10k um, or like some sort of trail running or half marathons or full marathons or triathlons or all of those sort of different events where you're trying to get competitive with yourself and have your best performances there? Or is it something where you're trying to get better at running to improve your specific performance in the sport of fitness? And each of those are different ways, and I'll probably attack them a little bit different ways. The simplest one is probably if you are focusing on a running-specific event, because you know the date of that event, you know how long it's going to be, um, you know a pretty good idea of what the terrain is, if it's uh, road, if it's trail, like the specifics of that event. So for that, there's no real way around getting away from the volume. So if you're preparing for a half marathon, you are going to have to be running several miles at a time, especially in the latter months as you prepare for that. And that being said, you have to definitely do your due diligence 
about making sure that you start your progression early enough that you can build your volume slowly before that event. And obviously some joint irritation and muscle pain and soreness is going to be a part of that process, but it should be something that's accounted for within your program. And that doesn't necessarily throw you off course because you get so much more than you're expecting. So then lastly, so we have someone in the sport of fitness who was trying to get better at running so they get better at the sport of fitness, then the volume is rarely going to be ever more than like 5k. And it's usually more of a capacity or economy issue in a rounds for time type workout, or maybe like a chipper, um, or something like Murph where it's like a buy in or buy out. Those different scenarios are much more common than just running a set number of miles or it's a ruck, or it's over diverse terrain where you're not necessarily running the entire time. So the biggest thing for running for the sport of fitness is making sure that you are able to run at different speeds because a lot of different workouts require different speeds. Also running under high general fatigue with like a high respiration rate or um, a really high heart rate or blood pressure or local fatigue where maybe your quads are blowing up or your hamstrings are blowing up. And these are all things I talked about in episode 13. So for that person, they're already doing a lot of volume and a bunch of other things where their quote engine usually isn't the limiter. Like the thing holding you back from getting better at running for the sport of fitness isn't usually your local muscular endurance. It usually isn't your stroke volume or cardiac output or respiratory efficiency. It's just that you're not good enough at the skill of running when combined with all these different elements. So by doing these different skills or drills or developing gears and like different paces, learning how to run efficiently for a crossfitter's body, which is by running standards, quite a bulky frame. But again, that's a necessity of the sport. So you have to be able to cope with it. It's no different than a functional athlete learning how to swim. There's an efficient way to swim with a swimmer's body. And then that usually gets thrown out the window when we're dealing with a fitness athlete. So for someone who wants to compete in the sport of fitness, they're just going to have to get good at running with the frame that they need to do well in the sport. And then lastly, if we're looking to get better at running for the sake of getting better at running, um, just because that's something that you want to do and you want to get as good as possible at everything, and why not get as good as possible at everything? Um, but then you really get to pick the approach that you want because it's, it's totally you, like you own that process and that journey. But as you do that, I would abide by certain principles. And this is really where I'm going to be answering how you can overcome some of the joint irritations, the muscle pain, cramping, GI distress, all that stuff that can come with running and increasing your running volume. So the number one thing I would address is body size. That's the first thing I do as a coach is I look at that person's frame and ask myself if this person runs and I know the, the loads and the forces that are being absorbed and compressed in running, is that person going to be able to handle it? And I look at that through several different ways. Obviously, body size is one. Um, number two could be running form, like the running economy, how they're landing, how they're striking the ground. And um, that can also include shoes and things into that, like Nick alluded to. But also, what does this person do on a daily basis? Like if I have someone who is a landscaper or a construction worker, and they've been doing that for a decade, then their postural musculature is likely built up to a point and volume tolerant to a point because they are on their feet all day long. So if a person like that transitioned into running, they're going to adapt and be able to handle that much better just because their tissues and structures are there. Even if the engine isn't there, the engine will develop. However, those structures take a very long time, like years to develop. And that's one of the things I'll get to later on. So besides their body size and their actual form, the third point we can think about is the surfaces or terrain or gear that they're using. So surfaces could be things like, are they running on the roads, like the actual pavement? Are they running on sidewalks, which cement is actually higher density than pavement? Are they running on grass and other uh, maybe turf in those sort of surfaces where it's more absorbent? 
Are they running on rubber mats like in a gym and doing like shoulder runs, more of that sort of thing? Are they running on a treadmill where the belt might absorb some of the shock and then they go wrong roads and then they can't handle it? So like oftentimes if people go from transitioning a lot more of indoor running to running outdoor, it's a much more of an issue. And part of that is the terrain. So if I have someone who lives in Florida all the time and then they go out to Aromas through the games and they have to do a trail run and they have up and down all these different terrains, they're oftentimes, especially like their calves and knees just aren't ready to handle that variance in terrain. And then also gear can play a part of that where it says someone has really old running shoes where they're worn down, um, they have no arch support, that can obviously be an issue. Um, that's not the place that I would start, however. Like I would address someone's body size, the running form, the surfaces that they're running on, the volume that they're running with, and then look to like the shoes and some of those finer points. So number four here is the volume. So addressing that actually relatively later on in this list, it's not the first thing that we come to. That's one of the things I want to pay attention to. But also I want to pay attention to not just progressing volume slowly because I think people understand that, but thinking about different systems in your body have different adaptation rates. So just to illustrate this really simply, think about your hair, your nails, your stomach lining, um, even like menstrual cycles, all those different things. The cycles of renewal are actually fairly quick in the grand scheme of things, where if we think about connective tissue, things like tendons, ligaments, bones, that's going to take years to remodel. So if we're thinking about volume, a lot of people think that within a training cycle. However, you also have to think about it, not just in terms of like your heart, your lungs, your muscles, the engine, but also thinking about the chassis. So if you have this really big engine in the sense that you've developed all the components you need for high performance in terms of running, but yet you haven't given your body and the structures of your body, connective tissue and bones, the time that they need to be able to develop and to make change, then that's a recipe for disaster. And this happens all the time where someone builds up their volume relatively quickly. And that's relative in the sense that they did a correct progression like that you would see for someone preparing for like maybe a marathon where they started and they're basically running very minimal, maybe of several miles per week. And by six months later, they're running maybe 50 miles a week, which doesn't seem like at any point there's a big jump there, but your connective tissues still have not adapted to that, but yet your heart, your lungs, all those capacities are ready to go. So you're basically putting this huge engine onto a tiny chassis, and then it's just ways for you to break down your car, like in this case, your body. So my advice would just be, be super patient. Like you're going to have to wave the volume where you go up and you hit a higher volume period to get ready for maybe it's an event, maybe it's just for the sake of running, maybe it's by season or during summer you run more and then you're going to wave it back down. But each time you're going to get up a little bit higher in terms of your volume and it's also just going to allow those structures that are longer term, the ligaments, the tendons, the connective tissue to adapt to that over the long term. Hi Ben, this is Pete and I'm listening to your show from Greece. I have a question about the episodes on running and the assault bike. Is there some sort of standardized equivalence between the two types of cardio training? For example, say if I want to do the standard Helen workout, which typically involves 400 meters of running, how can I substitute that with uh, some sort of air bike interval? Thanks a lot. Uh, really enjoying your show. Okay. So if the question is, is there a standard conversion that is widely accepted between running and the air bike? The answer is no. 
Um, so why not? Um, first of all, each air bike is different in how difficult it actually is. And that goes between brands. So if you're using Rogue versus Assault, each of those brands is going to be different. And then within models of the same brand, like Generation 1 of Assault bike is different from Generation 2, etc. So there's discrepancies between brands and even within brands. So that's the first issue um, is that you can't compare one air bike to another air bike. The other issue then is when you go to compare that to running, that running is a locomotion activity where you're moving yourself through space, while air bike is an erg-based activity, which means that you're moving essentially an external load. You can think of something other than your own body weight. So the resistance is the blades of the fan moving against the air. So those are fundamentally different things because the one you're moving your body weight, the other you're working against external load. So if we have someone, just to illustrate this, if we have a 200 pound male, um, they might substitute something like a 30 calorie air bike for a 400 meter run. And that could be equivalent in terms of however you want to measure that. Um, Maybe it's how hard they're working or how difficult that feels or how long it takes them. That could be equal, that 30 calories for that 200 pound male could be equal to let's say a 100 pound female substituting a 14 calorie air bike for that same 400 meter run. That could be the same rating of perceived exertion, RPE, or time domain as the other athlete. So both of those could have taken the exact same amount of time for each of those athletes to complete, even though that's not the standard difference in terms of calories between males and females. So because they're fundamentally different movements, the way that you're going to convert them uh, just doesn't work very well, to be honest. So to answer this, let's go into what substitutions make sense. There's really three options that I think could work, and these could work for any cyclical activity. So it could be rowing for a salt bike, running for uh, rowing, any of those sort of combinations, ski or whatever it is. I think there's really three options that could make sense depending on who you are. So the first one is subbing distance to calories or vice versa or calories to distance. With this, you just take the distance or the calories and convert it to the opposite using sort of your best guess. It's really a guess at this point based on your experience. So for example, if I want to substitute the first and last mile runs of Murph uh, for air bike, maybe because my knees are beat up or something, I could just say, I'll do 100 calories instead and kind of make up a number. So if we do this method, the first thing we have to realize is it definitely has some limitations in the sense that if you were converting from a distance to a caloric metric, those are fundamentally different things. And really the only way this makes sense and works out well and does not change the pacing of a workout if it is a single modality test, workout, or piece. So for example, if it's a 2K row versus 120 calorie row, each of them just being only row for time, then they're not going to be dramatically different in terms of pacing as long as the time domain is about the same. But I wouldn't be able to use that same substitution for any sort of mixed work. So for example, Helen, the example you gave, which is running kettlebell swings and pull-ups, you can't really do that because it changes the pacing dynamics. For example, if I did want to pace Helen, I would pace it differently if I did a 400 meter row versus a 25 calorie row. And that's just because with a rowing pace, you have to put exponentially more work in to have that pace continue to go down. So it actually changes the way that you would attack the workout if you're converting between distance and calories. And there's nothing wrong with you doing that. But if we're trying to compare results um, from one test to another test, that's not something I would recommend. So the second option, if we're not trying to convert calories to distance or vice versa, is just thinking about in terms of time. So this is what most classes use. And it's something that 
the coach kind of makes up and feeds to the athletes, whether they really think about it actively this way or not. So if I'm the coach, I'm thinking, okay, we got a 400 meter run today. It takes the average athlete two minutes to complete. Then how much distance can the average athlete get through in that amount of time on whatever piece of equipment? So maybe it's a 1K air bike as a substitution. And it's basically just something where it's like a one-to-one in terms of time for the average athlete who does it. So again, there's going to be outliers. If we have a large male versus a small female, the one might be very good at moving their body weight. The other one might be really good at spinning the erg. That's going to really change the dynamics of that workout. But it's fine because it's a class workout. It's not that big of a deal. Where if it was something like a competition, if we had two athletes next to each other, you can't do that because it just doesn't work. So the real limitation for this is that each athlete's proficiency is going to vary for each cyclical movement. And then our third option uh, is heart rate at a certain pace. And this is something where it probably isn't going to work out logistically for a class, but if it's where you want to substitute it for yourself, it could work out. So say I want to run 400 meters at my desired workout pace for, let's just say Helen, my heart rate is going to average. Let's just make it up and say it's 145 beats per minute when I'm fully arrested and I'm going at my pace. So then if I go and I hold a pace on the air bike that results in my heart rate averaging at 145 beats per minute, then I'm going to go to the air bike and get on and go at a pace that averages my heart rate at 145 beats per minute. And then I'm just going to note my average wattage when I do that. Then I'll take that average wattage and I'll just hold that for that amount of time that actually take me to run that 400 meter run. So just say it's going to take me two minutes to run 400 meters at 145 beats per minute. I'm just going to ride at the assault bike at two minutes or let's just say it's 275 watts, something like that, where it's a one-to-one equivalent in terms of heart rate. The limitation of using heart rate, though, is that your heart rate for different modalities is going to be different, as well as your stroke volume and cardiac output. All those things are going to be different based on each erg that you go on, the number of muscle groups that are involved, the specific muscle groups that are involved, and the orientation of your body. So if you're like upright versus seated versus prone, all those things are going to shift. So for example, running has a higher sustainable heart rate than biking will, and biking will likely have a higher uh, sustainable heart rate than ski erg. Skier will likely be higher than swimming. So again, that makes it really challenging to compare one exercise to another. So likely you're confused at this point. So here's how I would attack it. Basically make substitutions based on a single athlete. So in this case, it's just going to be you or one of the athletes that you coach on a given workout and to get the desired outcome that you want out of that workout. There is really no one size fits all approach to substituting these different modalities out. So the long-winded answer is that there's all these different ways that you could do it, but realize that if you want to compare your results in one workout to another workout and it's got a different modality and you're trying to sub it out, it's just not going to work out the way that you want it to and you're not going to be able to compare the way that you want to. So it's an unfortunate reality, but you can probably get pretty good and get a good guess as to what you want to see out of that workout based on what you want the intention of that workout to be. Hi, Ben. My name is Andrea Canziani. I call from Switzerland, Europe. I have a question about episode 10, double unders. Why is the double under movement so difficult for tall people? Or better, I am a tall guy. Why it is so difficult for me to get double under? Thank you very much in advance. All right, so I'm interpreting this question as why do big and tall athletes struggle with certain bodyweight movements like double unders, for example, and what can these athletes do then to overcome these specific weaknesses? So certain things are going to be harder just because you're a big and tall athlete. What things can you do to overcome those things? 
The first thing that we have to realize is as a big and tall athlete, so someone who's above average in terms of height, in terms of weight, you really have two strikes against you if you fit in that category. And I mean big and tall relative to the people that you compete against or the average person who does your activity. So for CrossFit competitors, I would consider someone to be big and tall for a male if they're above six foot. 210 pounds for a male or for a female like 5'8", 160 in that range above that, which definitely isn't big in terms of the grand scheme of just the population. But for the specifics of CrossFit competitors, that's where I draw the line for being big and tall because it's relative to the people that you compete against, not necessarily against uh, the entirety of the population. So let's think about being big and tall as these two different strikes against you, so to speak, that really for a lot of the sport and the way that it's measured puts you at a disadvantage in the sport. And that's not to say that big and tall people can't get to a high level in the sport, but it's to say that you certainly have to do more focused work to get there. So firstly, let's think about what it means to be big or higher than average in terms of your weight. This means that quite literally, it's going to take you more force to do all of your body weight activities. So in other words, all of your gymnastics and body weight supported cyclical movements, stuff like running double unders. So that's the first strike. And the second strike is that you're tall, which means that you have to move a further distance on every single rep on every single movement that has a range of motion as the standard. So everything that is weightlifting or gymnastics based in CrossFit has a range of motion standard. So you have to squat below parallel. So you go from having all your joints locked out to hip crease below the knee. In the shoulder to overhead, it's from the shoulder to the overhead in the locked out position. In the chest to bar pull up, it's hanging from the bar with straight arms to having your chest touching the bar at the top. So if all these range of motion based activities, they literally have to move a further distance and that's what makes it so challenging. Another thing is because your limb lengths are longer, you literally have to produce more force to be able to manipulate your joints to be able to move your body as well. So not only are you traveling a further distance, but you also have to produce more force. So this is where we're getting this double strike against a big and a tall athlete where you're going to have to do very focused work to be able to overcome that. So for this big and tall athlete, I have a few tips that I would recommend to help overcome some of these problem areas. So the first thing I would do and the thing that I would attack first is manipulating your body weight in the off season if it aligns with your goals. So that's something I talked about in depth on episode number 12. So I'm going to leave it at that. But that would be the first thing that I would attack. Manipulate your body weight in the off season if it aligns with your goals. Number two, be efficient and economical in terms of your movement. So you're always going to be fighting an uphill battle. If you aren't being as efficient and as economical in terms of your movement as possible, it's going to be very hard for you to compete against a field that is just at a mechanical advantage over you. So I think a lot of people think of efficiency and uh, economy as two interchangeable words, and I don't believe so. I think of efficiency as having good, clean technique as a whole. I think of economy as your ability to be able to consume the least amount of oxygen or use the least amount of energy as possible while going through that efficient technique. Um, the moral of the story, though, is if you, you are not working on your movement on a regular basis and really focusing on the technique and managing that the best you can, you are really leaving a lot of performance on the table. And the other good thing is as you're working on your efficiency and as you're working on your economy, you'll also be minimizing a lot of the problems that big and tall athletes have, things with joint irritations um, and just not being able to handle as much volume and total um, training load just because you are a bigger person every single time you move a bar 
are or move your body weight, you have to move a further distance. So there's just more wear and tear on the joints. You have more weight on your midline. So it's literally you need more integrity and you have a higher ratio between your lean body mass to uh, respiratory intake. So all of those things stack up where you just need to be working on your movement more often. Number three here is spend more time developing gymnastics proficiency. So this is not just analyzing your technique and making sure that you're as efficient and economical as possible, but it's also making sure that your programming aligns with it so that you have the performance on game day that you need. So here's one of the silver linings for big and tall CrossFit competitors. If you are someone who is a master's athlete, let's say you are between like 40 and 54 in that range somewhere where you're not at the 55 plus age group yet where the prescribed weights drop. So in other words, you're at the range where you use all of the open weights that all of the individual athletes still use. So you are someone who is, you know, maybe 40 or 50 years old, but you're still required to lift the same amount of weight as someone who's 22. What that means is that the bias towards lifting goes higher and higher as you get closer and closer to 55 without going over that threshold. So if you're someone who's a big and tall 45-year-old female, provided that you actually have one muscle up, that you have one chest to bar, and that you can do a couple toes to bar and some handstand push-ups, some things like that, some of the basic skills, if you have those and you have the basic proficiency, even if you're not super advanced and you're able to lift the weight because you're a bigger or taller athlete, you're actually at an advantage. So for specifically thinking about master's athletes, um, that's actually one of the ways where being a bigger and taller individual in the sport can really actually lend itself as an advantage. And the last thing I would say is someone who's a big and tall athlete is make sure you're working with a coach who understands that your needs as a big and tall athlete are different from the average athlete or someone who's just in the middle of the field. So if you're trying to do a blog style program or you're just doing like your gyms programming or something like that, you are really at a big disadvantage and you're not going to be anywhere near your genetic potential because you're just not training in a way that is ideal for you. Really one of the things that I encourage you to do is to go find a coach. I certainly work with people. If you have questions about my coaching, head over to zorfitness.com slash coaching. If you have any questions, feel free to email me. Um, my email is plenty of places you can find it. Hi, Ben. My name is Ricardo Bardales from Irvine, California. My question is from episode 15 on training pitfalls. Let's say you've identified yourself as being in one of the six errors outlined and have hit a training plateau. What kind of programming template would you recommend to successfully transition back into consistent and productive training? Would that be something more along the lines of a back-to-basics approach or kind of a do-what's-fun approach? Thanks for your time. Really, I believe this question just, it depends. So rather than just leaving it at that, I want to go through three different scenarios, depending on who you are, um, where I think we can probably silo people and um, give generally good advice based on who you are. So first of all, if you are number one, someone who is an athlete who you are competing at a fairly high level, and then your progress begins to stall um, or plateau, you might call it then it might mean that you are doing more limiter-focused work where you're focusing on your specific limiters and doing less total work for a period of time. And that will allow you to rebuild resiliency and adaptability where you can actually adapt 
and make positive progress and gains from training again. So it's totally possible that someone's not enjoying training or they're overtrained, that they're having maladaptations to what they're doing, and they might actually be getting worse by training more. So by pulling that out and doing more limiter-focused work and just pulling out a lot of the volume that they're dealing with, that can allow them to get in the right head state and then also have the right physiology and adaptability to be able to respond to that. Uh, the second silo that I think people could fall into here is that if you are a person who is a relative novice and you stopped having beginner gains, then the answer might just be to choose to double down on your energies of getting better and for chasing, let's call it forever diminishing improvements. Like there is diminishing returns. The more you spend time in a particular area, the amount you improve is just going to be less and less. And you're going to have to work more and more for less and less. And you can get frustrated with that. And I think a lot of beginners do and they see that, oh yeah, this is not as easy as it was at the beginning in terms of how quickly and how fast my acceleration of improvement is. So for that athlete, it's making a choice of deciding, you know what? This is not going as easily as I thought. That's okay. It's a worthy thing to actually go and try to do. So I'm going to take my energies and really place them onto that thing. So that'd be the second athlete. And then the third is just a person who is a consistent gym goer or class member that has just frankly stopped enjoying their training. And that really as a result, because they're not enjoying their training anymore, that's really halted their progress. Then for that athlete, bringing fun back into the equation is hugely important. Again, this could mean different things for different people. But it could mean writing your own workouts and metcons and just like doing stuff on your own for a little and having fun with it. Uh, could mean getting outside and getting away from the gym and maybe going mountain biking or hiking or something else that you enjoy outdoors. For someone else, it could be like doing weightlifting because you find the mastery in seeking out those particular movements enjoyable and spending some focused weightlifting time could be great. Or whatever other activity that you currently find fun, something that you find fun and enjoyable that still involves moving uh, maybe a, a side route or not really a shortcut, but maybe an alternative route towards your goal. Things to help get you back on track and just start moving again. And then once you kind of feel a renewed excitement about training, then go back to a base cycle where your focus is building back into those fundamental movements again. And something like a base cycle is what I would give to an athlete after they've come off a time of detraining or training of a, a much lower volume where we're building back. And a really simple model for this base cycle could just be something like CrossFit total lifting combined with cyclical aerobic work. So like CrossFit total would be back squat, strict press, deadlift. Um, so just doing some basic strength progressions combined with easier cyclical aerobic work because it's easy on the joints. It doesn't leave you trash afterwards. Um, so it could be rowing intervals or assault bike intervals. Um, again, not stuff where you're like dying on the floor afterwards, just stuff where you're building back into the gym. And then my last thoughts would be, I would say just like realize that progress isn't linear. Uh, the best road forward uh, sometimes means that you actually have to backtrack for a bit of time. Honestly, for an athlete, that's going to be a hard sell, but it's something that you have to have that conversation with yourself or with your athlete. Everyone at that place where they're either experiencing burnout or stalled progress, and it's, it's an inevitable part of training, and you have to be able to figure out a way to navigate that and to get yourself back on track. Hi, Ben. This is Rochelle from Amsterdam, the Netherlands. I have a question regarding episode four about nasal breathing. So in that episode, you are talking about recovering while nasal breathing. Um, and one of my questions is, what are your other recommendations when it comes to recovering in between sets? 
Thank you. All right. So I love this question. I think it's really good and applicable to a lot of different people and a lot of different activities that you could be doing. So speed of recovery is in a very important quality for athletes in a big variety of sports, really. So a couple of examples, if we're talking about American football players, it is recovering between plays or within between quarters or when the other team is on the field. If we're talking about soccer players or for everyone other than Americans, it would be football. Um, It's a recovery walk or recovery jog between uh, bouts of short sprints. So you're actually recovering during the field of play. For a cyclist, it could be recovering between stages um, of multi-day races or it could just be recovering during a downhill um, or as you get ready to go into a turn or as you let up on your pace or wattage on a particular moment. So if we go to the opposite end of the spectrum and talk about somebody like a weightlifter, recovery is still super important. It's just a different type of sport. Um, So in this case, recovering between workouts is super important or between individual lifts. So the ability of your body to be able to recover back down to baseline and get your tissues and body ready to lift heavy again is a very important quality. And the athletes that can do that um, and get more quality sessions in a given week within a given training cycle, within a training year, and then within their entire training career, they're just going to be a lot better off. If they don't break down, if they recover quicker, they're able to lift heavy loads more frequently. They're probably going to get stronger and have a faster adaptation curve. So for CrossFit athletes, it's really a sort of a combination of all these things because we have an infinite number of potential tests out there. So firstly, it could be recovering uh, between sets or rounds of a given workout or during certain breaks or transitions during a workout, or if we can take a certain piece a little bit easier, all of those are means of recovery within a particular workout. So we call that intra-workout recovery. So it's in the actual workout itself. The other is inter-workout recovery, where it's between events or potentially days of a competition. So just say we have an athlete who goes to the games and they have five days of competing that they have to do in maybe 15 events then it's very important that they can recover not just between rounds or sets of a workout or between lifts, but they can recover between each of those events and over the course of that weekend to be able to perform better on the latter days in that workout than their competition. And all that's really just to say how important recovering is. So the way that you recover optimally, which is, again, it's kind of a theory in this case, but it's going to greatly vary based on the type of work that you're doing as well as what is coming after it. So if you're doing strength work and afterwards you have to go into aerobic work, that transition time, which is technically recovery, you're going to have to enter that differently. Whereas if you're going from aerobic work into strength work or any other transition, those are all going to have different ways that you recover optimally for each of those things. So I want to go through how you might recover for strength work, like in between sets of strength work, how you might recover between bouts of mixed motor work. So let's just call it like uh, maybe like intervals that might be prescribed in a class setting that would be sort of a Metcon type format, but it has breaks in it. And then lastly, between workouts. For strength work, the first thing that I would think about is like, how long do I have to recover? If this is strength work where it can be fully rested, you're going to go through this sequence of what would be ideal to help yourself relax and then to get aroused again so you can lift optimally and to express maximal strength. You don't always have that luxury. Like sometimes you're lifting really heavy under a clock where you have to be able to regulate arousal and be really tense and rigid in a fatigued setting. We see like a max lift after a Metcon. That happens quite a bit. 
but for this question, let's just address it as strength work, like in a traditional workout, like five sets of five back squats, what should you be doing between sets to help you improve your recovery? So for me, what I really like to think about and what I try to help promote for my athletes is the first thing that you do when you get done with your set is just relax, like try to chill out, relax your mind, relax your body, like try to let go of tension. And as a result of that, your heart rate, your blood pressure is going to start to come down and regulate. As part of that, I think it's helpful for athletes to have some sort of mental imagery or visualization that they can do to help them relax in that process. So for myself, I literally think about myself falling asleep. Like it's like the end of the day. Um, I'm either like driving home in my car and like super relaxed, or I'm literally trying to fall asleep. It just helps me completely relax in that moment and helps my heart rate drop a normal level of arousal where I was super amped up for, for a heavy lift. Um, after I do that for maybe like the first half of my recovery and I'm down to a, pretty close to where I need to be, then I'll start to visualize my lifts. So I'll actually think about how I'm going to unrack the bar, where I'm going to put it, or if it's an Olympic lift, like where I'm thinking about my pool, visualizing the perfect lift in first person. And then after I do that, um, I'm already starting to get a little bit more amped up at that point because I'm visualizing it and my heart rate will actually start to mimic what I'm doing. But then I really think about, okay, I'm starting to get ready to lift. I'll get my belt or whatever other equipment that I need. I'll get into the setup and then I'll harness my breathing in a way that's going to um, elicit that response, get into the correct amount of arousal, and then I'll actually go to lift my next lift. So I repeat that sequence for however many times I have to do it within that given session. And that's the way that I found helps athletes express their best strength. So for something like mixed modal intervals, let's just call it like a CrossFit Metcon where it's maybe uh, five rounds of time with two minutes rest in between, something like that, or every four minutes you have to do these three items and it takes you um, at least half the time, something where it's definitely a higher work rate. The first thing I would say is during your rest, don't suppress your natural inputs. So Rochelle mentioned breathing nasally. Yes, that can certainly be helpful. Don't try to force that on yourself too early. I think one of the mistakes that people make is they try to suppress their breathing. I think it's probably just the best way to put it, where really you want to get as much exchange of gas as possible, get as much oxygen in and as much CO2 out. Once you feel like the point like, okay, I can actually start to calm myself back down and not feel like I'm suppressing my breath as I do that, then that's where you can really start to transition into something that's more sustainable in terms of your breathing rate or depth. But up until that point, I don't want you to suppress what you're doing and I want you to follow your intuition. Um, That being said, there's certainly people that have faulty intuition where it's not something that they really should trust, but that's something for a different day and a topic I could really dive on. I'm thinking about letting yourself breathe and to get deep, restoring breaths in. And as you're doing that, I would start to walk around, do easy movement, starting to flush out the legs and the lungs and just having yourself move easy is a very important part of the recovery process. So say you have two minutes between, um, don't just sit on the ground, like get up, start moving around, start walking. Obviously no intense exercise at all, but starting to move at very low intensities is going to help promote um, you to actually use lactate as a fuel. And then also I'd encourage you to manipulate your state and level of arousal to get to the place that is going to be ideal for your next interval. Again, this is totally dependent on what the task is, but it's very important that you can get to that theoretical place. Lastly, let's talk about recovery between workouts. So this is really where your movement as a whole, so your lifestyle amount of movement that you have, the more movement that you can incorporate in your daily life, the faster you're going to recover. 
And that doesn't mean that you need to go hike 10 miles between sessions. It just means that you need to start building more basic aerobic function work into your calendar as a whole. Like build it into part of your life where it's just an everyday thing where I move around and I do it a lot and I do it all the time and I do it for years and it's part of my life. And that's where it's going to have a big recovery benefit, not just you moving because you're sore or something like that. Like you need to move all the time and then that'll help you because you just function better as a human being and your body is equipped to handle that recovery process faster. The higher aerobic functioning you have, the quicker you're going to recover as a whole. Mobility work can be an important part of this process. And again, one of the best benefits about mobility work is that you're creating parasympathetic tone within your nervous system and that you're just improving your soft tissue quality as a whole. Sleep, nutrition, those things are going to be just as if not more important than all the movement characteristics as well. So making sure you actually get your lifestyle aligned with what you want out of your body. And then lastly is where you could incorporate some meditation, uh, breathing work, mindfulness, um, all those things which are going to help get you to recover quicker just because you're in a state that allows for that expression. Hey everyone, it's Ben again, and I just want to thank all of you for tuning in to the first season of The Fitness Movement. It's really humbling to see everyone tune in uh, week after week, and I hope you all can connect with Zor Fitness and my company as a whole. So I really encourage you to go to ZorFitness.com and to get subscribed to the newsletter, and that's where you're going to get notified about all the new things that I'm putting out in terms of content. And if you're someone who hasn't been to ZorFitness.com yet, I really want you to go there and check it out. It's something that I've spent a lot of time on and put a lot of my energies into. Um, so on the side, I have a few different resources. Number one is my movement pages. So I'll break down different movements like deadlifts or overhead squats or ring muscle-ups or double-unders. And I'll really take an in-depth look at each of those movements. And I have videos and links and all the information and condensed and broken down for you in those movement pages. So um, if you're someone who's trying to master movements, that's definitely the place that you should go. Um, I have articles that I come out with about different training-related topics, um, whether it's about programming, nutrition, physiology, all of these different topics that I dive into on the articles. Obviously, there's the podcast links where it's the show notes to all of these different episodes where I include my personal notes, but I also link out to all the resources that I use in the show. I have a tab called Mentors where it's all the different people who I consider to be really influential in my fitness journey who I think can be great to learn from and to just digest a lot of their content as well. I have a tab called Ask Ben, which is a bunch of different video episodes of me answering questions from athletes and coaches. I also have programs on the site. I have an accessory work program for CrossFit athletes. I have our program Cyclical Supremacy, which is row, air bike, run program. I have functional thickness, which is all about adding functional muscle mass. I have gymnastics density for the big five. Um, so again, that's bar muscle up, ring muscle up, handstand push up, chest to bar, toes to bar, handstand walk. I have the overhead squat mobility program, and I have your first muscle up, that program. I really encourage you to check them out. And then lastly is my one-on-one coaching service. And this is where I program for coaches and athletes 
um, customized workouts for their specific needs. And I write every workout for them. I have video calls with them um, so that we can map out their training and make sure we're on the same page and plan out their different cycles. And I'll do video analysis for them where I'm doing commentary on their videos and having eyes on your specific technique. We'll go through a strength assessment and energy systems testing. All of these different things to really help you get as streamlined as possible in your fitness journey and to make sure that you're getting as much progress as quickly as possible. So I'm taking all of my energies and resources and diverting it towards getting you better specifically. So as you're waiting for season two, I really encourage you to head over to ZorFitness.com.